I'm Piers Linney and welcome to Rethinking Business, a new podcast brought to you by NatWest. Let's face it, the path to business success is rarely straightforward. That's why in this series, we're hearing from businesses who are thinking differently, disrupting industries, turning obstacles into advantages and bouncing back when things inevitably don't go to plan. Today, I'm joined by an entrepreneur who's a rarity in a male-dominated field. She's an award-winning video game producer, UX expert, and the co-founder of indie game studio Dynabite Labs. Welcome to Louise Leolin. Thank you so much for having me. Louise, you started uh, Dynabite Labs in 2015, just age 24. And now you've, I've noticed you've been featured in lots of ones to watch list. The Evening Standard named you amongst 18 women entrepreneurs that will inspire young girls to be their own boss, which, let's face it, is a pretty massive achievement. I've also read that close to 50% of gamers in the UK are female, yet there's a bit like in tech, there's a massive disparity in the industry where it's estimated that less than 15% of the workforce are actually female. So I think what would be useful is for you to give a bit of background to yourself and give us a bit of background to Dynabite Labs. So I am first and foremost a gamer. Ever since I was little, I remember loving video games and all of my female friends used to play games with me. Like as a child, it never occurred to me even that there was a chance that this was sort of considered a boy's thing to do. And that was something I really only noticed as I grew up and kind of around high school and university. There was a lot of stereotypes around who gamers were. And I don't know if that was a stereotype that was imposed by the industry based on what types of games they were making. They seemed like they were making more games for a male audience. But I knew myself that there were a lot of women who were playing video games and a lot of women who were looking for very specific games that they weren't finding on the market. So when I entered university, for my dissertation, I was looking into... uh, how marketing in video games could be changed to appeal more to a female audience. So specifically things like video game covers and how a lot of games like Skyrim, etc., they have a huge female audience. And yet the cover is kind of made to play on like a male power fantasy of being this like really huge butch warrior. And that if they had some sort of alternative marketing, maybe they could have had an even bigger revenue by getting even more women to play their games. So as, as a young woman, you didn't really notice that at all. You took it for granted, really. That was just the it was just the usual stereotype. I think one of the reasons is that as a kid, your parents are the ones buying you games. You don't really go to a store and think, I've got my money to spend. What do I want to spend it on? Whereas when I started going into video game stores and picking my own games and seeing like, what are the new titles? You know, they say don't judge a book by its cover, but that's pretty much all that marketing is. You look, it's the first impression that you get from a game. So I kept seeing these like very male, white protagonists, like scruffy beard. They absolutely all looked the same. And it started getting to the point where I was like, wow, it feels like maybe none of these games are necessarily made for me. And the ones that are, are very like pink or childish or about cooking or dressing yourself. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) And knowing that like myself, my group of friends, people that I see online were interested in those so-called hardcore games. I thought, okay, something needs to happen in the industry. There needs to be a change where we can start thinking more about gamers as all types of people, not just, you know, the very... And did that evolve over time, that thinking, or was it... A sort of a moment one day where some leader thought, that's it. 
In terms of wanting to like start the company and get into games, it was when I started reading about the fact that, oh, hey, maybe one of the reasons that the marketing isn't super great in video games is because there aren't enough women sitting in on these meetings and saying, you know what, maybe it's not a great idea to put that girl in a bikini armor on the cover because that's not going to get women to buy it. And I have actually got nothing against games that do want to have sexualized characters or girls who fight in bikinis. I think that there is a space for all types of games. I think that games are art and you can't really like censor art in that way. I just think that it shouldn't be what is the mainstream thing and the thing that is on every single cover of games. And that definitely in the last five years has changed so much. When did you decide to start a business? Because it's a passion, it's something you love doing. But that's quite, that's not, doesn't mean you're going to start a business, does it, uh, creating games? So just talk me through that, that process. And I understand your co-founder is your partner, Christian. Yeah. Um, so right after university, I was, I guess, headhunted for this design agency, which I worked in for a couple of months. And I definitely learned a lot from them. But the main work that I was doing there was web and app based and... I started noticing that I wasn't built for the nine to five typical like sit at a desk and do work that I'm not really passionate about. So I talked to my partner. I said, you know, we're young. Let's do something crazy. You know, he had his own job as well at the time. And we were kind of like, should we maybe try starting a company? I know that like... He thought you meant let's go traveling. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. No, but um, I saw a lot of like freelancers coming in to our agency. And I was like, well, they're getting paid almost twice what I'm getting paid for doing this freelance. So I could maybe give this a go. And also, that would suit my lifestyle more. I have something called endometriosis. It makes it kind of difficult to have a very like steady nine to five type pattern and I just thought you know what if there's a way to work more flexibly while still doing what I like and actually getting to pick and choose a little bit more what projects I'm working on then it's worth giving it a shot if it fails you know that's okay we'll go back into the market like I said we were still young at the time and I think that irregardless of your age you can do things like this and kind of you have to take a bit of a risk to try to ensure happiness in the future. So you now started a business where you're sort of contracting almost, aren't you? Yes. So what was that and how did that morph into Dynabite Labs? So at the start, we were kind of saying whatever jobs we can take, we're going to take them. Whatever clients we can get, preferably they should be gaming related. And we did have one big games related contract in our first year. But then I think pretty much all of the other ones were related more to branding, web design, things like that. And I think that we were kind of thinking this is a good way to build some capital because we didn't want to go in getting like a big investor who is going to have 50% of our company or anything like that. We didn't want to take out a huge loan because that's quite a risk as well if we're testing this out to see if it can succeed or not. But it must be it must have been frustrating that you couldn't just jump into spending you know all hours of the day developing your games because you had to do the client work and is that a continued frustration? It is a little bit. I know that for example, right now we still experience that where we have our game Meadly, which is set to come out in the summer of this year, which was actually supposed to come out about a year ago. But that's kind of one of those things that happens where 
ideally, we would want to only be developing this game. Uh, we got Kickstarter funded for that game, and that money only lasts so long unless the game gets finished. But then things kind of come in and take priority. Like, for example, suddenly we get a large contract that we have to do for someone else's game. And obviously, Meadly, which will earn us revenue once it's out, but isn't currently earning us, needs to be pushed forward. We have to do what well, makes it, us money now. It's so it's a balance. balance. Exactly. Between, and then at some point you're hoping you can flip over. Exactly. And it is frustrating as well having a project that you're super duper passionate about and then having to keep pushing that forward because of other things that are essentially just paying the bills. But luckily, at least those things are now games related. So even if it's a game teaching kids how to do math, we're still having fun making that as opposed to a website for a veterinary clinic or something random like that. So let's talk about Dynabite Labs. You know, Tell me, about, well, why is it different? Um, talk us through the vision. So when we started Dynabite, we really wanted to make games that were a bit different. And we didn't want to make the stereotypical mobile games like Candy Crush, which have which are super fun. I play Candy Crush all the time. What they call casual games. Casual games, yeah. exactly. They're a lot of fun. They can even be addictive, but there's not a lot of depth to them. They don't really have any story or interesting characters. And that's kind of the difference that we wanted to make. Yeah. Um, my partner, Christian, he studied games writing specifically. So it was really important for us to be able to put some depth in our games. And also because uh, I am a woman in games... It's really important for us to have a lot of characters in our games that are different from what is currently out there, or at least what has been the stereotype. So try and describe your games on a podcast. Midley is a story about this, uh, the spirit of a girl who is trying to help these lost souls move on from this kind of purgatory type realm uh, it's definitely a little bit dark in terms of its narrative, but it's not a scary game at all. It's actually got a very soothing aesthetic. Like I say, we have like wind chime sounds and rain and it's a very like, it's not a fast paced, stressful game. You can turn it on and kind of unwind. I imagine if you're sitting on a train on your way back from home and you have like the hustle and bustle of the city, you can kind of put in your headphones and just sit back and play this game and it'll calm you down. And that's definitely a big trend that's happening in the industry now is a lot of people are making games specifically with mental health in mind. Um, I think there's sort of a responsibility for all tech creators right now because there's a lot of conversation about kids being addicted to gaming or people being addicted to social media. And we have to kind of design with those things in mind to sort of guide your audience and tell them, you know, either that they should be not forced to keep coming back because that's, for example, one of the things in gaming that causes addiction is there are like these timers and things and we don't want to have a lot of that type of stuff gaming, in our games. Gaming's not going away, let's face it. No, so I think hopefully you're not. <laughs> you're, absolutely, you're absolutely right. That it needs to, be, needs to be thought about in terms of more Definitely. in terms of their design. And there needs to be a lot of responsibility and accountability, I think, uh, especially like... I love Fortnite. I think it's super fun. but I'm rubbish at it. <laughs> I'm rubbish at it too, but I still enjoy it. <laughs> but uh, I think that when you read all of these very sensationalized articles about kids who just sit and play for eight hours straight and how it's harmful for them, etc., you kind of need to think, okay, 
who needs to take responsibility for this? Is it the parents? Is it the game makers? I think it's definitely a mix of both. But something needs to be done so that future games have some sort of um, responsibility for stopping that type of behavior. So let's talk about the business. So you've got no external investment. You haven't got any debt. You no investors. You basically be doing client work to fund building the gaming studio. But you did go. You did go to. You used Kickstarter, didn't you, to raise some money? Yeah. I guess it wasn't a huge amount of money. Mm. So just to share why you did that and how you found that process. Uh, well, we really thought that Kickstarter not only was a good platform for gaining some investment, but also is amazing for marketing. Just being on Kickstarter lets people know that, you know, your game is coming out and it's going to exist. It gets people invested in terms of wanting to follow your story as you create that game and having a large amount of people, first of all, holding you accountable, which is really important. Um, I think a lot of entrepreneurs will, or specifically in games especially, tell you how it's hard sometimes to maintain the enthusiasm for a project that takes a very long time and having that community kind of being like hey you know when's your next update going to be we're really excited to hear what's happening and being able to kind of post little things like okay now we finished the character art for this what do you guys think and they're like oh we love it that really feeds us and so makes us want to keep on, going on the journey and, and exactly you've got a, a, an instant feedback loop exactly so share your top tips then for crowdfunding Top tips. Hmm. I'd say, like I've mentioned, I don't know how many times, you have to make a story that people care about. Uh, if you're going to make a Kickstarter video, you need to be in it. You can't just put your product on there and say, hey, buy my product because it's good. You have to say, hi, I'm making this because I have XYZ story related to it. Or, you know, I'm really passionate about my project because when they see your enthusiasm, they're going to become enthusiastic as well. And then making rewards that people will be interested in as well. Physical rewards are more difficult because they obviously cost money, which you have to take out of the money that you get from Kickstarter. But people are more interested in having something physical than just continual like digital rewards or we'll say thank you in our video or something like that or credits. So, yeah. So your business now, you know, it's going to start getting serious. You launch Midly, you begin to sell it, you start making some money. And then, so have you planned ahead, really, for scaling your business in terms of the, the boring stuff, mm -hmm. you know, finance, a business plan, operations? Because I know it's you and your partner. Mm. Or is it, is it kind of day by day? Um, we definitely have a plan for the future. It's not day by day at all. But it's difficult sometimes to predict. Like we have an expected revenue that we think Meadly will hit. And that can obviously be less or it can be more. And so that will affect our future plan and how we scale. I actually think that in the games industry specifically, there's an interesting thing where even the smallest companies or developers have a chance to make it big. You see that, for example, um, Stardew Valley was one of the biggest games uh, a couple of years ago. And that was made by one person. And that's the thing that's so great about the games industry is even if you're at indie level, there's always that chance that you'll, you know, have that viral effect. And then you'll have more success even than a company that's what we call like a triple A studio, like EA or whatever. In a sense, well, they're not really... You can't rely on that, can you? You can't rely on You can't rely on it, no. You have a massive viral hit. That's not a... It happens, Viable, as yeah. you know, but it's not a, a repeatable business plan because what Definitely. you what you do have and i'm involved in businesses that are potentially what you call hit factories mm. so you have one and then there's no other exactly and the first yeah. one begins to wane it's mm. all over i'm sure you, we all know about those cases in the gaming industry mm. so what's your plan in terms of getting you know midly out there to your audience 
but then what? I think uh, one of the most important things is to build a fan base and to then keep making games that are similar enough without repeating themselves that people are interested in what's next for you. Uh, with us, for example, we have a very similar aesthetic across all of our games. So people who like one game might see our other ones and then want to buy them. And I think one of the most important things for entrepreneurs and small businesses nowadays is personal branding. You want to tell a story. Uh, Authenticity. Exactly. So you know your customers, who they are and where they are typically. And I guess that you're communicating with them and building relationships through social media across different platforms because you haven't got marketing dollars. Mm -hmm. So how are you actually building your business in terms of profile and reach? Like you say, social media is hugely important. I think if you're a small business or an entrepreneur and you're not on social media, even if you have just a personal Instagram, that is hugely important. Getting people to care about your story and then interacting with them and caring about their stories as well. Uh, we have a lot of people who message us, for example, and say, oh, I'm so glad that you're making Meadly because I struggle with anxiety too and I relate to these stories. And they tell us a lot of, you know, their own personal reasons for why this game is important to them. Or when we're doing user research, for example, to try and make our next project, we find out what people are interested in, what, you know, they're passionate about and trying to sort of respond to that. So you're asking your community almost. Yeah. What do you want next? Yeah, we actually we have a program called DinoBits, which people can sign up to, which is essentially a pool of our gamers who we will give early access to, like they can play game demos that we're making. We'll send them surveys to find out, you know, what they like in terms of a lot of different things and essentially shaping our games based on their feedback. And how's your profile as this sort of female gaming studio entrepreneur? How's that changed? Have you seen a sort of a acceptance or a change or is it a surprise or is your audience very female? Um, I'd say our audience is pretty 50-50, actually. Uh, definitely in terms of the people that we interact with. Like, we have some followers who, you know, you start to recognize them. You don't just talk to them once or, like, like their comments. You create a dialogue and they almost become kind of familiar to you in terms of your community. And in terms of being a, a woman in games and how that has changed things, I think... It's interesting because in my own industry, that's now very, very celebrated. And in a lot of ways, I sort of, I don't see it as a huge issue. It's just getting on with it. Exactly. Yeah. Other than that, I do really want to um, inspire but, more girls. Well, that's the point. Exactly. You know, never <laughs> underestimate the power of a role model. Exactly. So what is it you're struggling with? Because, you know, you are in a... I know, I know you've got a niche, but mm. um, you know you have to write code in these testing. There's, there's a certain cost to that. Mm. But you know you're very confident and very excited. I can tell you've got your new product coming out. <laughs> but we all know this mm. doesn't just happen. No. So what is it that keeps you awake at night? Uh, well, that's actually one of the main reasons we started our blog, A Couple of CEOs, because we really wanted to demystify this idea that starting a business is so complicated. And we kind of talk about the fact that it's okay to be a total mess, right? Like I talk about the fact that I have anxiety and a lot of the time, though it's gotten much, much better uh, in the co last couple of years, I used to get panic attacks every time I was going to have to present something or go into a meeting. I was so stressed out about it. 
But I still managed to get through that. Um, we talk about how you have to sacrifice a lot. It's not easy. I know I say like anyone can do it and anyone can, but no one can expect for it to be easy. We definitely have lost a lot of friends just for the sake of losing contact. You know, people keep asking every Friday, oh, let's hang out. Let's do this. And you're like, sorry, I have to work Friday evening. I have to work Saturday. I have to work Sunday. I've been working, you know, 20 days in a row without a break. And to some people, they don't understand that. But to us, you know, it's our passion, even if we get burnt out, which we have a lot. Um, it's just something that we kind of we do, we learn from, we adapt. And that's kind of the, the whole point of our blog. So on your journey so far, obviously, it's something you've been very passionate about and you've been very focused on it. But what would you do differently? Oh, a lot of things. Um, I think it's taken, we're in our third year now, and it's taken that long for me to start learning about how to not be so perfectionistic about everything. Uh, in the beginning, everything felt like it mattered so much. And I was like, if this blue is slightly bluer, that's going to be the difference between make or break. And ultimately, those little things don't matter so much. So definitely taking too much time to develop certain products and going over time on certain client contracts because we are kind of second guessing ourselves and not confident enough in the work. That's been one of the, the biggest things, time management in general. I definitely think that we're getting to a place where like we have a really steady rhythm and setup. We found a lot of tools that work for us in terms of like Kanban boards and using things like Pomodoro, which like is a method of working. Other things that we messed up, there was our second year was in the very beginning was very difficult because suddenly after like a really good year, we had no client work at all come in. And that's where we... I think spent too long trying to think, what should we do next? When you're in that situation, I think you kind of have to act a little bit faster. So it's just one of those things of not second guessing yourself and having the confidence to say, okay, let's just take a leap. Let's go in this new direction if this isn't working and trying to do that a bit faster. So you're now a role model. For, <laughs> um, you know, and, and it's an important thing because mm -hmm. if people don't see people like themselves doing these things and they don't aspire to do it themselves. Mm. So it's really important. So who are your role models? Or do you have any role models? Or even in the gaming sector? Uh, I definitely have a lot of role models. It's kind of a tough one because there's sort of this thing inside of me where I'm like, do I want to say who my actual role models have been? Or is it bad that they're all men, for example, right? In the games industry. Well, that's my point. Yeah. That if, if that's all that was there. Exactly. Well, who else would it be? Exactly. Uh, in the games industry, you know, I really look up to Phil Spencer. He's the um, head of Xbox. And I think that the work that he's done in terms of making the games industry more inclusive, and he does a lot of work for women in games, that's really inspiring. But yeah, it's just that weird thing of, I wish that there were more women that we could point out as role models in the games industry and that's definitely changing and there are a lot of amazing women in the industry as well to look to. So do you feel pressure? I mean you're, you're yes. young, you're, <laughs> you're on these the ones to watch list so do you feel real tangible pressure? Definitely. And does that impact your your business or your aspirations or your plans? Absolutely. I think the pressure is possibly the thing that has impacted our business the most because um, when we started out I had no idea that I was going to get highlighted like that just happened by chance it was almost like 
luck or something that I started getting, you know, highlighted by these different publications talking about me. And I started feeling like, okay, if we make something, it has to be something impactful or important. We have to be sending a message. We can't just make, you know, we had games in development at the time that were sort of more like Candy Crush. And then once you have all this spotlight on you, you think, okay, I can't be talking about the importance of, you know, having good characters in games, et cetera, et cetera, and then release a Candy Crush game with no characters. We have to make something bigger. And that's one of the biggest reasons why we rebranded and we decided to change our game to become Meadly, which has a lot more story and a variety of diverse characters from different ethnicities, et cetera. Have you got any particular tips for women entering similar fields? I think there's something about having the confidence to walk into a room and know that you're going to be different from everyone. Uh, for a while, I was kind of finding my, you know, identity and style and thinking like, should I be more tomboyish or should I be this and that? And ultimately, you just have to be comfortable with who you are. Like, I'm not only a woman in games, I'm very feminine. I usually wear dresses. I have long hairs and bows in my hair and stuff like that. And that's going to make you stand out. So just be okay with that and be okay with the fact that people are going to second guess you and question you a lot. Um, we still are in a place where not everything is perfect, but a lot of stuff has changed. And in the games industry in particular, I know that big studios are making a lot of changes in order to become more inclusive. They're actively looking to hire more women. They want to hear what you have to say. But there are still smaller studios where, you know, that hasn't taken effect yet. So you kind of need to be an innovator yourself. You need to be ready to get in a room and say, hey, I think what you're doing is wrong and stand up for what you believe in. Well, listen, Louise, it's been amazing talking to you today. Likewise. Uh, it's, been, it's been fascinating <laughs> and I could... I could carry on for all day but we're going to have to sort of bring this podcast to an end and really last thing to say for everyone listening is to look out for the launch of Midley which will be <laughs> in the next few months hopefully if everything goes to plan definitely uh, it's been amazing talking to you meeting you thank you very much likewise thank you for having me that's all for this episode of the Rethinking Business podcast from NatWest a big thank you to Louise Leolin the founder of Downaby Labs to discover more about the topics we've discussed today, business insights, local events, and stories from businesses facing the same challenges as you, search NatWest Business Hub or go to natwestbusinesshub.com. I'll be back in a week's time with our next episode, so make sure you hit subscribe if you haven't already. But until then, from me, Piers Linney, thanks for listening.